Hello, this is Michael Albert, the host of the podcast named Revolution Z. This session is a bonus entry, a bit of self-promotion, I guess some would call it. A fellow named James Wilson wrote a review of Revolution Z and sent it my way. We published it on Znet, but it occurred to me that some listeners to the podcast might not notice it on the website. And I also wondered, would listeners agree with Wilson's assessment, feel it was off-base, feel it was too positive, or what? So I thought I would offer his review as a bonus session, and that I would not only read it for you, but interject some comments of my own while doing so. There is another motive for offering this, of course. If past informs prediction, I doubt that Wilson's review will find its way onto other sites. Republication is unlikely, just as, at least so far, no site other than Znet has seen fit to link to Revolution Z's vision and strategy episodes. Podcasts on what is wrong with society, podcasts on the thoughts of dead thinkers, podcasts on Trump's tribulations and machinations are all welcome for display on diverse left sites. Podcasts on what to replace capitalism, racism, sexism, and authoritarianism with, and insights regarding how to best to do it, at least so far, are not so welcome. So I am thinking that perhaps if listeners hear Wilson's assessment and you find yourselves agreeing with him, Maybe you will add your voice to efforts to make more widely known what Revolution Z is doing by inviting friends on board, using social media to promote it, perhaps even doing your own review of it. In any case, here goes Wilson's review. And be forewarned, Wilson is apparently unswayed by the limits and habits of tweeting. Even without my occasional brief interjections, his review is very much not a tweet or blurb, but a full-length article. Wilson titled his review, The Positive Dialectics of Four Hills and Revolution Z, with no apologies to Adorno. But don't be alarmed. For my first interjection, I would like to note that I don't get the apology bit myself. And other than that part of this title, Wilson writes for you and for me, and not for Adornites, dialecticians, whatever that really means, or others immersed in obscure verbiage. So, Wilson begins. Little Big Man. I can't remember the book by Thomas Berger exactly, Wilson says, but I kind of remember the movie. Near the end, Old Lodge Skins, Chief Dan George, goes out perhaps to the top of a hill, let's just say that, and he takes little big man, Dustin Hoffman, with him. He lies down, and to cut a long story short, Old Lodge Skins says something like, today is a good day to die. He closes his eyes while little big man watches. Thunder cracks. I actually can't remember that, says Wilson, and a raindrop hits Old Lodgeskin's eye. Old Lodgeskin's twitches, stirs, opens his eyes, and admits that perhaps another day will have to do. In the book, says Wilson, I think he just dies. In the nonfiction activist book, she said, Wilson continues, Ashley Judd says something similarly poignant. I have to know the hill on which I'm willing to die, Judge told the group, says the book. The equality of the sexes is that hill for me. And now Wilson turns his attention toward Revolution Z. He writes, In complementary holism, there is this notion that no sphere or area of society is more important than another, and that they have to operate in concert and harmony or tensions and frictions will appear, undermining societal stability, pulling things in the more forceful but not necessarily better direction until stability is restored. Complementary holism, I interject, was the name a bunch of us to, who together authored a book titled Liberating Theory in 1986 gave to a perspective we had then, and I suspect most of us mostly retain now as well. 
Wilson continues, there are essentially the political sphere, dealing with political systems, the economic sphere, obviously economics, the kinship sphere, concerning in part sex and gender relations, and the cultural community sphere, where the fight against racism predominantly occurs. Within each of these, there are, today, serious problems to contend with, but let's just say each one revolves around equality, justice, fairness, and ideas of democracy, or establishing some sort of truly open, transparent, and fair participatory decision-making process. Though in the book Liberating Theory, the four foci of social organization are called spheres, Wilson continues, I like to use the label hill now. One can easily visualize Ashley Judd standing on the hill upon which she is willing to die, the kinship hill for equality of the sexes. One can see all the others in the world fighting for equality of the sexes and or gender standing upon the same hill next to her and imagine those from the past, like Mary Wollstonecraft, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, suffragettes for instance, along with thousands of others now all actually passed, buried beneath. The hill could be some symbolic kind of burial ground, Interjecting now, Wilson has a vivid imagination. This is certainly not a way of presenting the view of liberating theory that I ever thought of. But perhaps it is more effective, at least in some respects, albeit than those I have thought of. At any rate, Wilson goes on. Now imagine Judd and her friends staring across the skyline at other hills with large numbers of people standing upon them. To one side there's the economic hill, with all those fighting for economic equality, justice, and fairness. On the other, the cultural community hill, with anti-racists and others fighting for equality, fairness, and justice from minorities and oppressed groups. And out front, the political hill, where others are doing much the same. There is a little correction I feel a need to interject. Yes, these spheres, or hills, are places where activists give attention, which is what Wilson is quite reasonably focusing on. But they are also sources of pressures that define and tend to continually reproduce the social relations of our lives, which, of course, is why activists focus on them. Looking at them mostly, however, as targets for activism, which is certainly also valid, Wilson writes, Something isn't quite right. There is plenty of distance of nothing between each hill. One may even need binoculars to see individuals on other hills, and one could even imagine jungle canyon rope bridges connected precariously to the hills or dangling uselessly down, broken and unattached, a sign of previous attempts at communication between the different hills. Interjecting now, in their dynamics defining and tending to preserve existing relations, the spheres or hills actually intersect one another, each impacting and even helping to reinforce and even reproduce the others. But speaking of these hills as foci of activism, Wilson continues, I think the image is clear. Upon each hill, a huge monument and visceral testament to radical revolutionary history are standing thousands and thousands continuing the fight for change, all of the willing to die, but at the same time somewhat disconnected and isolated from the other hills that they can see all around them. Wilson goes on, an interesting thing about that final get-together at Gwyneth Paltrow's house in the book she said, with the journalists and others who actively sort out and encourage women to speak publicly or tell their story, is not the solidarity of the gathering and the fact that they are all on the same page. That's a given, and a great and necessary thing. What's intriguing to me is the inequality in the room, admitted at times, but nonetheless set aside, as if it is in fact just an aside. It's not a concern of the book. That there is someone in the room fighting for equality of the sexes and or gender and anti-discrimination rulings and laws, etc., doing exactly the same as Ashley Judd and others, yet only earning $10 an hour, is telling. 
In the context of the hills, Wilson continues, one could visualize the McDonald's worker and activist, that I cannot remember her name directly, like I can the famous actors, is also telling in a different way, standing on the kinship hill, standing alongside Judd and the others at Gwyneth Paltrow's, staring over at the economic hill, realizing the need for something that is perhaps lacking on the hill upon which she stands. Perhaps not totally to be fair, but not always clearly evident or sufficiently attended to. But she can also see, if she squints, that those on the economic hill are predominantly male and white, not exclusively, but predominantly, and that there is much bickering. When she glances over at the cultural community hill, she sees many skin shades and colors, what seem to be people of diverse beliefs, cultures, backgrounds, and lifestyles, similarly animated. She wonders whether they and those on the economic hill are necessary allies helpful others who could possibly aid and attend to the gaps and shortcomings that seem to exist on our own hill that go unacknowledged or get brushed aside. Wilson continues, It goes without saying, if these three hills, upon which so many are willing to die, all connected themselves by building bridges far more sturdy and steady than the flimsy, wobbly, jungle canyon rope bridges that seem to, to already be there, or broken, the same could be done to the fourth hill, the political one. A hill upon which the McDonald's worker and activist at $10 an hour can see predominantly big daddy white geezers all bickering over how to politically rearrange this and that, anarchists and Marxists, social democrats, democratic socialists, and liberals arguing, yelling, kicking, screaming about the correct way to proceed and design a new political system. But, continues Wilson, pursuing his own imagery, imagine all these hills connected with strong, sturdy bridges. Imagine all those standing and willing to die on one hill, easily moving between all the other hills, absorbing and utilizing new and useful ideas that inform and benefit those on their own hills, and doing the same for the others. And imagine each hill standing their ground and refusing to withdraw from their own specific concerns because of the importance of them, but not skirting issues or problems that arise around them. One can now imagine the issues pertaining to particular hills no longer existing in isolation and disconnected from those of other hills in ways that can only benefit rather than hinder or thwart progress. Imagine the power, the numbers, the solidarity within the diversity, says Wilson, and imagine the to and fro of useful information and ideas that could bring resolution to long-held sectarian disputes and that could lead to better strategy, tactics, and a sense of real community. Imagine all the hills connected, passionately discussing and debating the real and ideal, the global and local, theory and everyday life, revolution and social democracy, trying to find solutions and the best paths forward, the buzz, the mayhem at times, even chaos and bickering that eventually gets resolved. Wilson goes on, but most of all, imagine the four hills upon which so many are willing to die, all connected as if it was one big fucking hill upon which everyone was willing to die, because that, in fact, is what we are all on, one big fucking hill. Which brings me to something else, continues Wilson, the Revolution Z podcast by Michael Albert. This podcast's concerns are rooted in the ideas of complementary holism, the equal importance of all four hills. Although in early episodes, but not all, Michael's focus has been predominantly the concern of those on one particular hill, the economic. Wilson continues, in most of those early episodes, he outlines and elucidates the essential features of participatory economics, PARICON for short, an alternative economic system to capitalism, market socialism, and central planning developed by himself and friend Robin Hanel. 
He does it methodically, clearly, and in simple, understandable fashion, starting from its foundation in a set of values, equity, solidarity, diversity, and self-management, and moving to its institutional structure, followed by responses to queries, questions, and criticisms. I have to say, says Wilson, without doubt, that within the world of revolutionary politics and vision, I have rarely, if ever, come across such a methodical discussion around one of the most important questions that has plagued the revolutionary left for centuries. With what will it replace the current economic system? I say this unequivocally. Yes, there are those involved in similar projects doing similar things, but there are none that truly drill down on such things as remuneration, corporate divisions of labor, self-management, and the ills of market allocation, like the authors of participatory economics do, and like Michael Albert does in his podcast. And further to the point of this essay, says Wilson, Albert makes it clear to all that not only does he embrace critics and try to answer their every question, he has no illusion about the necessity of an alternative economy working efficiently and in concert with all the concerns of those radicals, revolutionaries, and activists standing on the other three hills. Participatory economics was designed, says Wilson, to promote and foster not just desired economic goals and outcomes, but the goals and desires of all the other hills. He makes no bones about it. If participatory economics was unable to foster the set of values that form its own foundation in accord with the desired aims of those on all the other hills upon which many are willing to die, then it's back to the drawing board. With this said, says Wilson, it is important to acknowledge how important something like participatory economics is to the world. There are not many visions that clearly set out broad institutional structure to achieve maximal benefit. A vision that coherently delivers ethical remuneration, endeavors to ameliorate problems wrought by hierarchical divisions of labor, and achieve classlessness, that defines self-management and what is necessary for it to effectively function, and that offers an alternative to what is by most considered the only planning option to market allocation, central planning. Albert also illustrates problems surrounding mixed economies with some planning and some markets. An economic vision that is efficient and ecologically sound and that operates in concert with the concerns of all other hills. A vision clearly rooted in radical history from Proudhon and Owen to Marx and Bakunin up to Anton Panikok, Diego Avad de Santillan, and Cornelius Castoriadis. Many think that Michael Albert, Robin Hanel, and participatory economics go a little too far. The word blueprint often comes up. I won't press the point here and will just say it is so not a blueprint. Actually, in my opinion, there are not many blueprints lying around to tell you the truth, whatever they are. For me, it is rather that most or all visions do not go far enough. They are often thin on detail, avoid certain questions, and immerse themselves in ideas of hope, we all do, notions of self-emergence, and in words like commoning. All good things, but things that have been around for centuries and yet capitalism continues to run ransom. Wilson goes on, there is much discussion of local community economics, building out from such things in vague terms like eco-socialism, often in the context of some theoretical we that will build all these things together, a we that will somehow naturally discover a better future as it proceeds, improvising and struggling uphills. The sort of thing exemplified by what I consider a rather misguided comment by activist John Jordan in A Post-Capitalist Politics by J.K. Gibson Graham. Jordan says, quotes Wilson, Our movements are trying to create a politics that challenges all the certainties of traditional leftist politics, not by replacing them with new ones, but by dissolving any notion that we have answers, plans, or strategies that are watertight or universal. We are trying to build a politics that acts in the moment, 
not to create something in the future, but to build in the present. It's the politics of the here and now. I am not meaning to pass judgment on Jordan himself. It's just a statement I take issue with, says Wilson, and I will interject here that I agree. Wilson continues, Whether the traditional left has ever dealt with watertight certainties and answers is moot, and one can never create in the future, one can only ever build in the present, for the future. With the past gone and the future not yet, there is only ever the present, and even its existence is tentative. And building in the present is never ever free of the accumulated knowledge, ways, and traditions of the past. What one hopes, says Wilson, is that the present contains and builds on past successes while learning from failures. And the thing that local endeavors need is a vision that ties them together, efficiently and coherently on a grander scale, in a way that fosters desired goals and values, creating confidence that a socialist world, rather than just a local one, is possible. This is what participatory economics, unashamedly rooted in radical left history and tradition, tries to do in the present, from one sixtieth of a finger snap to the next, the way everything swims through or floats along with time, says Wilson. It is not that these very practical and existing local experiments and successes aren't necessary. They are. In fact, they all are just natural occurrences and happenings, in my opinion. There are always practical people who like to try new stuff, new ways of doing things. It's just that they, continues Wilson, like, the, like a Green New Deal, absolutely necessary now, another topic, do not tackle essential problems and issues the way participatory economics does. Local community economics, alternative initiatives, co-ops, etc., don't necessarily provide wider economic institutional structure or vision that both resolve important problems and could also help many ordinary folk, not now involved directly in any of this kind of activity, confidently imagine what socialism or eco-socialism actually is or could look like on a larger regional, national, or even global scale. Such initiatives, Ed Wilson, are often seen as merely admirable experiments here and there, inside a shitty system, which may or may not be able to be expanded in terms of the consumption and production of larger federated regions, something de saint endeavored to tackle during the Spanish Revolution. And John Jordan's statement offers little in this regard, which seems to be his point. It's just not one I agree with, adds Wilson. Wilson continues, to quote Andrew Kleiman, a Marxist who it seems has spent some time thinking about Marx and his relationship with post-capitalist systems, in an essay published at the Marxist Humanist Initiative, Kleiman writes, Perry can, can look like a blueprint spun out of the heads of two intellectuals, but I think this is largely due to Albert and Hanel's tendency to give us their conclusions rather than exhibiting the process of thinking that led them to these conclusions. In fact, the specificity of participatory economics results largely from their attempt to work through the tensions and contradictions that arise when one thinks about how to break the logic of capital. Their purpose, it seems to me, is not to build castles in the air, but to formulate an alternative that will not revert back to capitalism because it has its own self-sustaining logic. Wilson adds, it is not entirely true that Albert and Hanel tend to give conclusions rather than exhibiting the process of thinking that led them to the conclusions. In fact, in a book entitled Thinking Forward, they do exactly that. But at least Kleiman acknowledges the importance of and need for something like participatory economics and what it can bring to the revolutionary table. Something Marx was reluctant to do, according to Peter Hudis. Indeed, Wilson quotes Hudis saying, Marx's reticence about indulging in detailed speculation about the future society, in place of what the proletariat itself is and is compelled to do, 
is closely connected to, its, to his opposition to the subject-predicate inversion. I interject. Note the obscurity of the person quoted compared to the person quoting. And Wilson continues, quoting Hudis, who wrote, Posing a vision of the new society for the proletariat, or irrespective of what it is, amounts to foisting a product of intelligence or imagination upon the actual subject of history. With Hudis continuing to add, Much of what Marx has criticized in capitalism in his early writing centers on the tendency to foist the products of human development upon the subject, irrespective of its own needs and desires. Why would he now favor promoting a vision of the new society, irrespective of the proletariat's needs and desires? Indulging in speculation about the future, irrespective of the subjective forces that can realize the ideal, amounts to a violation of one of Marx's normative standpoints. Now back from Hudis quoted to Wilson doing the quoting. Wilson continues, Yale's subject predicate inversion, the working classes are always tediously going on about at the local, eh? And well, we wouldn't want to foist, quote, a product of intelligence and imagination upon the subject of history, quote. And Wilson adds, I assume that's the proletariat. Now would we? Well, I reckon there's actually nothing wrong with doing so. You don't have to foist it upon anyone. You offer it up, gently, yet assertively, as something worthy of considering, says Wilson. And Wilson continues, again, it's not that participatory economics is the answer. Kleiman, like Garal Perovitz and others, even Noam, aren't convinced of its feasibility, which does not nor should not in any way undermine its importance, and because, well, they could be, as Albert argues, wrong. Because it is only one call from one hill, but it is a call that recognizes, respects, and listens to all calls from other hills. It was designed with that in mind. I would like to interject here. True, it was, and Revolution Z similarly speaks to and with Wilson's other hills. In any event, Wilson continues, But further, at the Revolution Z podcast, there is something about the way Michael Albert addresses criticisms and concerns that pulls one in. It's the way he takes to the questions posed by Barbara Ehrenreich and the ideas of Noam Chomsky, both good friends. It's the manner in which he calmly explains and answers criticisms, outlines why participatory economics contains the institutions it does, and is structured the way it is, exactly what Kleiman says he and Hanel tend not to do. Michael Albert's answers illustrate clearly what is required to develop a, a participatory socialist economy that works beyond just the local one that achieves desired outcomes in concert with all hills without impinging on the rights and decision-making of present and future generations. His is a clear vision that provides a coherent answer to the question with what to replace capitalism, not just castles in the air. Wilson persists. In pretty much all my readings over the last couple of decades on alternatives to market capitalism, I have found no equal, as far as explanations for what participatory economics sets out to achieve, in reasoning, clarity, and coherence, than in the work of Albert and Hanel. Most other alternatives are purposefully vague, on principle, ideas devised by those reticent to go too far in visualizing what they want, like Marx was, I think mistakenly, and somewhat conceitedly. And Wilson adds, and what the left wants is essentially embedded both in the set of values participatory economics is founded on and in the maximum expounded by most socialists from each according to ability to each according to need. But this maxim, like the phrase eco-socialism, is merely an idea that tells one little about how to achieve anything, says Wilson. In order to put such a maxim into practice, there are many questions that require answering and tangled issues that require unraveling. 
and I would argue that in participatory economics, a call from one particular helm, and in the Participatory Z podcast, most, if not all, of these questions get attended to, if not an answer without denying the importance of all the other hills and those who are willing to die upon them. Well, that's how Wilson concludes his review. Of course, I appreciate his assessment. I hope his positive reaction is warranted. And of course, I hope others will decide to review the podcast, or still better, the contents that Revolution Z offers. Review it negatively. Great. That will reveal need for improvements that I or someone can hopefully act on. Review it positively. Great. Perhaps that will prod others to listen in on an episode or two to decide if the visionary and strategic content usefully addresses any of their concerns or interest. So, with thanks to James Wilson, I would like to urge that not only can reviews of Revolution Z help, so too can word of mouth to friends and repost to social media, not to mention material aid via the website www.patreon.com slash revolutionz. And finally, with all that said, this is Michael Albert signing off for this bonus session of Revolution Z. Until next time.